It's a terrible season of despair. Pastor Eric is sick and in need of your prayers. Continue to pray for him. A relentless cold has held him down for the better part of a week. You add to that the idea that uh, your taxes are due tomorrow. (laughs) Get your taxes turned in, okay? But there's many of you in a congregation who have been just swamped with this. We've got CPAs and small business owners, and they've been laboring in grief, this season of, of terrible despair with the sicknesses, and now you know, thinking about contending with 2,600 pages of IRS tax code that you have to comply with. It just adds grief upon grief and despair upon despair. Some of you, when I mentioned taxes, you look surprised. Did, hopefully that was the first time you've heard this. <laughs> This is Passion Week also. You think about despair. It's, it's Passion Week. The passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the passion that he went through, as even Brother Don had mentioned, walking toward his crucifixion. And all the things that would mark that road, from betrayal to lies to physical torment of the highest caliber. This was all part of this week, this week of terrible despair. It's incumbent upon you as you think about this week to reflect on and remember Christ. I've given you homework for for the John study, chapters 18 and 19 of John. Read those chapters and be in despair over what the Christ suffered for us. So this is a week of despair. It's a week of pain. And in it, we face challenges. We all face challenges from the overcoming of sickness to the compliance with the government the Lord has appointed over us to turn in our taxes and conform to its rules to the taking time in the busyness of life and the schedule to remember the passion of Christ. You have challenges. Your challenges aren't limited to these. There are others and they are great. Your biggest challenge, however, is not in these other circumstances of life. Your biggest challenge is not even in remembering the suffering of Christ over the course of this next week. Your biggest challenge is knowing the salvation that comes through Christ at the end of this week. Do you know, do you personally know Jesus Christ crucified? Do you know that message? Do you know the salvation that comes in his name alone and by no other name? Do you know that salvation? This is my burden and my concern for us all this morning, which is why I've decided that instead of despair and pain, we need to unwrap a gift. And the gift that we're going to unwrap and the gift that we're going to unpack is the gift of salvation. If you haven't turned in your Bibles already, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be studying from Ephesians chapter 2 today. The gift of salvation is what we're looking at. And we're going to unpack the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation was on the mind of Martin Luther 500 years ago. Martin Luther, you should know that name well. He was greatly troubled by his personal inability to be righteous in the sight of God. Stuck in a religious system that offers salvation based on works How could he ever free himself from the minute-by-minute grief that tormented him or the shame over his sin that he only continually felt? I would imagine that some of you here today feel that same grief and torment, minute-by-minute, shame for sin. He tried to get rid of this himself. Martin Luther did. 
by visiting his priest to confess so often that the priest, whose name was Johann von Stoppitz, told him, Martin, Stoppitz. <laughs> he couldn't get him out of his office. He would come in and prostrate himself on the floor and plead with him five minutes after having been there for two hours and do it all over again for another two hours. It so grieved him. How do you get the sin off of you? Torn up was Martin Luther. He tried everything to relieve himself of this guilt of sin, but he could never, as he said, get rid of it. He went on to say this, because Roman Catholics priests try. He said this, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven by monkery, it would have been me. I did all the monkery. It wasn't until studying Romans in the original Greek language that Luther understood justification before God happens in an instant, not over a long period of time as the Roman Catholic system demands. Also through scripture, Luther understood that faith is not choosing to agree with church rules. Rather, faith meant trust in a person and work the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the difference between being sold on the idea that a parachute can be a lifesaver, but actually then purchasing one, putting it on, getting into an airplane, getting up to altitude and jumping out and then pulling the ripcord. That's faith. Bad theology brought this man to terrible despair. You're thinking you're in the church, brother. <laughs> You're one of the men that's supposed to be ministering to other people. Shouldn't you know this message? There are a lot of men in the, in the pulpit these days that don't know the message. Bad theology brings terrible despair. It brought it to Martin Luther. Luther described his conversion as being led out of a dark prison house of self-inflicted penance into the daylight and fresh air of God's redeeming love. Ouch. Sounds like he had a considerable number of days in despair and pain. Good theology, however, gave Luther the joy and hope, even the confidence and boldness, which God so powerfully used to kick off what we know as the Reformation, Protestantism, the movement away from Roman Catholicism. Diving into the text of Scripture is our best means for avoiding our own personal years of bad theology or monkery, if you will. What monkery are you mixed up in right now because of bad doctrine? Bad ideas, faulty understandings about salvation. Do you know how exclusive salvation is? Can you explain salvation accurately? Do you know that salvation, if you have it, it comes with expectations? What are they? Are you doing them? How can you know? Are you even saved? These are the kind of things we want to answer. And I believe that the text of Ephesians launches us down this road to answering if we are faithful to unpack the gift of salvation. Paul's letter to the Ephesians has the answer to these questions in it. Paul is intent on presenting the absolute facts about salvation so that you will be successful in your greatest mission. And if no one ever asks you this question in your life, I want to ask it to you right now. What is the purpose of your life? What's the purpose of your life? All God's people said, 
to glorify God. Exactly. That is the purpose of every human life. That's why you exist and your heart hasn't stopped beating and why oxygen continues to respirate in your lungs. It's not because you're trying. It's because God's holding all those things together. I want you to see salvation. I want to unpack it with you. You're in your Bibles. You're in Ephesians chapter 2. Today is Palm Sunday. And the saints rejoiced and heralded Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as we read We need to rejoice with them as well. There's no despair, no grieving, no pain. This morning, we will be looking to unwrap the gift of salvation. That's what I've titled the message, Unwrapping the Gift of Salvation. And here's why. You must unwrap the gift of salvation so that you might rightly glorify God. Because He is the author of salvation. This is a glory issue. And this is a glory passage. And he wants to make sure that you glorify him rightly in it. Our specific focus will be on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And it's there that I need to show you two perfections of salvation. We're going to look at two perfections of salvation. I'm going to read the text from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 to establish the context and the thrust of this passage of Paul. But before we do that, I want to consider the larger context. I'm just dropping you in here to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to round this out for you a bit. So bear with me as we go through and kind of run into the context of this passage. Where did this letter originate? What's its purpose? What were the circumstances under which this letter was sent? Paul is the author. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. It's his first imprisonment, and the year is A.D. 61. The church has started and it's starting to grow. He wrote to Gentile believers in Ephesus, passing along to them the purity and simplicity of salvation. That salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Look at the immediate context, though, with me. We would understand in in chapter 1 that there's a considerable discussion about the immeasurable power of God. That's what you see in Ephesians chapter 1. God, whose plan for all of time was to sum up everything into the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And upon explaining the riches of the glories of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Paul speaks directly to the audience in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and he says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men need a divine rescue. And the rescue is given in two simple words, but God... But God, and Paul goes on to unwrap God's act of grace, showing the breadth and height and depth of the grace of God in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. And then after the rescue, Paul doubles down on the source of the free gift, making sure to clarify the inexpressible value of the gift, because it is not the work of the hands of men, nor of the work of the thoughts of men that salvation arrives, but rather the rescue, the salvation is gloriously a free gift that comes from the grace of God. Let's look at the text and read it together now. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This passage speaks about the perfections of God's salvation. It begins with an idea And an accurate one at that of where man must be saved from total depravity. It moves into this understanding of the divine sovereignty of God in affecting salvation upon humanity whom he made and whom he knows what they need most. It contains the heart of the gospel that Paul was commissioned to preach. And down in verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul doubles down on this source of the gift And as we unwrap this gift of salvation, it is as if the manufacturer's tag is indelibly stamped onto the gift. Some of your shoes bear the letter S for Skechers. Some of the cars that pulled into the parking lot have the H on the front for Honda. This gift has a distinct G marked right on it. Let's unwrap God's gift of salvation and see what it contains. We'll look at perfection number one of salvation. Perfection number one of salvation. What is perfection number one? It is that salvation is exclusive. Salvation is exclusive. And we're going to go through multiple ways of why salvation is exclusive. But we also need to get into defining terms. Read the text again with me from 2 verses 8 and 9. Paul says to these Ephesians, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you feel the weight of the triple negative, the triple denial? Why did you have to throw that in there, Paul? We'll get to that. We see that Paul is continuing his exaltation of God By describing the power of God's grace. And he does so forcefully with the same words that he used in Ephesians 2.5 when he broke through into his own thought because he needed to exclaim, by grace you have been saved. Why did he need to break into his own thought and exclaim, by grace you have been saved? Well, to define grace. He wanted to identify what characteristic, what perfection of God would allow for God or cause God to do all of this work on the behalf of dead men, not just dead men, but actually his enemies. That's what we are, is it not? Don't we get born into this world as enemies and rebels of God? Isn't it only later on that he chooses to save some and pull us into his kingdom? He wants to define grace in 2.5. How is grace defined in 2.5? In the triple saving action of God. Grace equals this. 
Grace equals God's mercy plus God's love plus God's making us alive together with Christ. Here, Paul is defining grace, which leads to salvation, and he's doing it in 2.5 on positive terms. So what is the purpose of the restatement of by grace you have been saved in 2 verse 8? What's the purpose of the restatement? It's to make a negative and even a definitive denial of what grace is not. Long before Joseph Arminius existed, Arminianism was alive and well. How can you understand the free gift of salvation apart from a full and pure definition of grace? You can't. You can't. So Paul takes this moment in his text to doubly clarify the grace that leads to salvation because of the exclusive formula for salvation. In chapter 2, verse 8, salvation is the focus. And we see a formula develop in the addition of the words through faith. Can you see the exclusive salvation formula right there on the page of the scriptures. It's right there in the first nine words of Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. I'm going to ask you to do something a little awkward here in the church this morning, but just do this. Think math with me for a second. Think math. Okay. We're thinking math. We need to set up an equation. What does this equation look like? Salvation. Salvation equals grace plus faith. Got that? Right? Math. Easy. Salvation equals grace plus faith. That's what we're looking at today. That's the equation of salvation, the exclusive salvation formula. No other religion anywhere has a formula as perfect as this formula. Let's look at it and try to determine why by defining the terms that are there for us in the formula. Salvation equals Grace plus faith. What is grace? What is grace? Well, Paul defined it pretty well in 2.5 with God's mercy and God's love and God's making us alive together with Christ. But let's get into further definition of grace. Let's go a little deeper. Grace is this, out of the gate. Grace is this. Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Grace gives what is not deserved or earned. Grace can be seen by contrasting grace with mercy. They're not the same. Mercy is withholding just punishment. Let me give you an illustration. This past week, on Wednesday, 737 California state prisoners, convicted felons, received mercy from Governor Gavin Newsom, who issued an executive moratorium on the death penalty. 737 men will not be killed who were slated to be killed. None of the 737 on death row who committed their heinous crimes will be executed by the state of California. This is mercy. This is mercy. A withholding of just punishment. That's mercy. Grace is different. Grace is different. Grace can include the withholding and often must include the withholding. It must include mercy. Mercy is a part of grace. But grace goes so much further. When you think of grace, you need to use this one word when you think of grace. Grace is lavishing. Grace is lavishing. If Gavin Newsom were as gracious as he is merciful, he would invite these death row inmates to his home. 
He would feed them at his own dinner table. And he would even put tents and cots and beds in his own room to have them sleep with him and use his shower and his sink to brush their teeth. And then pull them into his office on Monday morning and let them help him rule the Socialist Republic of California with him. That's what he would do with them. If he was a gracious governor as much as he is a merciful governor. I'm sure, however, that today the inmates are still waking up in their cells. Can you see the difference, however? Mercy is the withholding of punishment. Grace is the lavishing of luxury. That's what grace is. You and I are born dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says. And trust me, you want mercy. You need mercy because the wrath of God is real. He will punish all of your sin. You must, however, look beyond mercy. Because is mercy enough to stand in the presence of God for eternity? Is mercy enough? No, mercy is not enough. You must have something more than mercy. You must have something more than the forgiveness of your sins to stand eternally in the presence of God. What more must you have to stand in the presence of the eternal God for all of eternity and enjoy his perfection? What more must you have than the forgiveness of your sins and mercy? You must have the righteousness of Jesus Christ cloaked onto you like a jacket. You must be clothed and cloaked in his righteousness alone. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's where you get your righteousness from. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you merit. It comes as a free gift because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is the lavishing of grace, and it is required for salvation. It is the giving of righteousness to wicked sinners like you and I, and grace is exclusive. God alone owns grace, and God alone is the giver of grace. Dead humans do not know grace except that we would receive it. Consider the exclusive salvation formula with me next as we look into the next term in this salvation formula, which is, by the way, again, salvation equals grace plus faith. Salvation equals grace plus faith. We're defining terms. We need to look next at what is faith? What is faith? If we know grace now, if we understand and have a well-rounded picture of grace, what is faith? Faith is simple. It's trust. Faith is belief. Do you realize that in your life, this is an everyday activity? You know, some of those Hondas that you pulled into the parking lot, they need a tire rotation. You know, they need an oil change. They're looking a little weathered. It's time to put some effort into there. You trusted it, however, to get you here. Do you realize that? And the pew that you're sitting on, they're loading up with people. Those pews are old. Are they going to hold all the weight of everybody on the pew? What about the roof? Are, is it really up there, termites holding hands? Or is it uh, going <laughs> to... What's going on up there? Do you know? You're trusting. You're exercising faith and belief right now. John MacArthur says, every person lives by faith. 
When we open a can of food or drink a glass of water, we trust that it is not contaminated. You're exercising faith all the time. He says, life is a constant series of acts of faith. You know faith. He goes on to say that the supreme act of human faith is when we accept that the finished work of Christ on our behalf completes the job and gives us his righteousness. He goes on to say further, that faith that you have in Christ for righteousness, John MacArthur says that faith is supplied by God's grace. You're exercising faith right now in the pew that you're sitting in, in this building, and even with the idea that your neighbor's holding that coffee kind of wobbly on their knee. (laughs) They might spill that on you, but you're trusting them without kind of like, you know, hey, can you put that on the floor? Faith must have an object, however. Faith is put into something. And faith must be based on reality and truth. You know, for instance, it might go like this. Sometimes strong-willed little boys will say, I can fly, Dad. Oh, really? But then he climbs a tree, and he gets up there, and he starts flapping his arms, you know? And what happens next? He jumps out of the tree and falls flat on his face. The reality of gravity proves him wrong. Or many state and federal workers, they say this, I have faith in retirement because of my guaranteed retirement check from the state and my guaranteed social security check from Uncle Sam. So you quit your work at 66 and you look forward to always seeing money electronically show up into your bank account until the reality of unfunded liabilities and bad monetary policy collapse the state of California and the U.S. Treasury, and you get no money, and it looks more like Venezuela than America of the 1980s. But you have faith, right? You have faith. On that note, faith begins with the thought of personal bankruptcy. That's where faith begins. Are you personally bankrupt? Faith starts with a recognition of your own inability to save yourself. Faith starts with a move from independent thinking, which is where we begin, to total dependence on Christ, which is something before you heard the word Christ, you never operated on and you never exercised. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until man is made to be nothing, God can make nothing out of him. God is the giver of faith through regeneration in his Holy Spirit. And when God gives faith, it comes with this understanding that you are nothing and that he is everything. He is everything. He causes you to trust his word, to obey his commandments, and you place your faith in the reality and truth of this. Jesus Christ was crucified to purchase salvation, which God promised would happen years in advance and which God gives as a free gift of his grace alone. As I said, your faith must live in reality and truth and must be put into an object. And so I'd ask you, what what becomes then the central object of your faith? What becomes the central object? Based in reality and truth, what becomes the central object of your faith? The Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 says, justification is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.26 says, righteousness, the righteousness of God is had through faith in Jesus Christ. We've looked at grace and we've looked at faith. 
And we're looking at this equation of exclusive salvation that goes salvation equals grace plus faith. We're looking at this equation. And we need to look at that next word. We need to look at salvation. The other side of the equation. What is salvation? Salvation is to be rescued, to be kept safe, to be delivered from harm and to be preserved. Salvation here is a past action with continuing results and effects. That's an important term. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to explain what that means. Salvation here is a past action with continuing results and effects. It's a Greek verb tense that we don't have in English. And so what it means, I have to say it, all these words are what it means. It means you were saved, you have been saved, and you are continually in a state of salvation. That's what that Greek tense is trying to get through to us. Moreover, here in Ephesians 2.8, saved, also, this verb is found in the passive voice. What does it mean that it's found in the passive voice? It means this. Salvation, being saved, is something that you don't do. Passive means that it is happening on you, that it is happening to you, that it is something that some outside cause is directing at you. This salvation that we're talking about is exclusive because it happens from outside of us. And it happened, it is happening, and it will only ever continue to happen. What other religion on earth gives this guarantee about the standing that you have with the deity to whom you worship? That you have a right standing with him yet while you live? Is that the case for Muslims? No. How many people in this world right now suffer because they doubt their deity is pleased with them? Literally, we would understand billions of people. This is not the reality for Christians who have been given salvation from the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that He is holding us fast together right now. And I'm eternally right in His sight because I believe that His Son died in my place. But who else is excluded? If these deities are excluded from offering any kind of genuine salvation, who else is excluded? And this is the big part of the passage that you need to personally accept and come to grips with. You are excluded from generating salvation. You are excluded. And why? Well, there's two reasons why. Number one, no human merit is allowed. No human merit is allowed. If so, grace is not grace. And salvation becomes a payment. It would be like those prisoners, the 737, meriting of their own works while in prison. The idea that Gavin Newsom would actually have them into his house and let them stay and shower and go to work with him the next day. That they merit that. That there's some work that they did in prison that got them the abiding opportunity to be with him forever. God is not into reciprocation. He's not into the idea of, You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. This isn't give to get. It's not like politics where you pay to play. Any form of reciprocation destroys the glory of the cross and the very definition of the word grace. Grudem says that boring grace and merit ultimately destroys the heart of the gospel. Think of it like this. How many sins can you pay God back for in your own good works? How many sins? Or rather, how many sins did Christ on the cross 
not pay for, that you now need to work for to pay God off for? How many sins were not covered by the shed blood of Christ that still, even now for you, require payment? Clearly, the answer is none. The blood of Christ covered everything perfectly. Well, the second reason why you are excluded from achieving salvation. Because if salvation was something that was in your grasp, you would boast. That's what Paul says, right? You would boast. You would think that there's something special about you and that you deserve some kind of recognition. You would boast. Boasting is pride. It is the taking of glory to oneself. And God has made clear in Isaiah 42, 8, I will not give my glory to another. See, God knows well the hearts of humanity who rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden, seeking a glory that was not their own because they didn't honor his word. He knows that heart very well. He knows your desire to glorify yourself, and Paul does too. When Paul wrote Romans 3.11, he picked up on the very words of David, who understood well the depravity of man. And in Psalm 53.3 and Romans 3.11, the words say this, There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you agree with that? Has the world taught you to agree with that? The world thinks that you start off good. Or at worst, that you start off neutral. Is there neutrality in this world? F.F. Bruce says, where divine grace operates, human merit is excluded and human boasting too. You must understand. Salvation is a glory issue. In Exodus 34, 11, the Lord is a jealous God, says Moses. No worship will go unpunished, which does not go directly to him. Isaiah 48, 11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act the word of the Lord. How can my name be profaned and my glory will not be given to another? God is exclusively going to capture all of the glory that he can for himself. Anybody have a problem with that? Anybody want to threaten God or challenge him or tell him, no, some of that glory belongs to me. How dare you take one ounce of his glory from him? He's earned it all. He deserves it all. He will get it all. Glory is exclusive to God and so too is salvation. God's exclusively the delivery vehicle of salvation. He's the agent of salvation. He's the owner of it. Have you considered what happens otherwise? Consider this. What happens otherwise? If what I just said is not true, do you know that there are people who have turned the idea of salvation into a multi-billion dollar industry? Do you know that? I'll say that again. Do you know that there are people who have turned salvation into a multi-billion dollar a year industry? They have turned the sacrifice of Christ into a profit machine. They heap up heavy burdens on men that they were never meant to bear by suggesting that men can and should always pay for their sins, that men can work and earn salvation of their own merit, and they pass on a collection plate. And how many men and women are sitting in those pews more than willing to put in big money to pay off all the sins so that they can earn salvation on their own terms. There's literally millions of people doing this, even right now. They set up church rules that demand your presence at church. 
so that they can heap up guilt for failed conformity to the rules. And then they teach you virtually nothing about what the word of God actually says while they keep their minds, keep your minds, the congregation's minds, locked into endless and vain repetitions while they're holding their beads and counting them up five at a time. They press it or they dress it all up in formalities with big fancy clothing and a lot of sacramental systems, massive architectural marvels they are in with just visual splendor all over the place, and then give you a host of saints that you can choose to venerate as your own in place of Christ. Do you know of whom I speak? The Roman Catholic Church has turned a free gift into a fortune grab and turns salvation into an abomination. Even after, even after the failed crusades that they launched in 1095 AD, all the way through 1272 AD. And then the embarrassment in their own ranks of the time of the triple Pope, which went from 1378 to 1417. Then we had the global rebuke to their system in the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century. And most recently, we've all been aware and familiar with the priest pedophilia scandal that continues to rock Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is proof that salvation can be turned into an industry because people in their heart like the idea of being able to pay for their sin. They like it so much they're willing to overlook horrible atrocities to keep their form of self-worship. But you can't pay for sins. Not one. Not one can you pay for. There's no amount of effort that God would allow you to put down range to get back to the nearness of his glory and perfection. Paul says to the Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh and the giving of money and the practicing of Rituals? And in Romans 3, 27, Paul says so clearly, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We've been unwrapping the gift of salvation one word at a time. From Paul's exclusive salvation formula, salvation equals grace plus faith. Such a simple formula. If, if you're an artist, and we have artists in our ranks, they would say yellow plus blue equals green. The kids among us would say milk plus cereal equals breakfast. And the parents of young ones would say the rubbing of eyes and the crying, it means that it is bedtime. Hold on to this simple formula. It is God's it's, it screams of God's control, that God's always in control. You know, there's so many that look tired. You look tired. Do you need a rest? What greater rest can you be given than to know that God authored salvation and he is in control of everything and will give you peace now and an eternal rest? You look like you have financial challenges What are financial challenges compared to eternal salvation? If God saved you, seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, and then all the other things of life can be added unto you if you first honor him. 
I've shown you that the gift of salvation is exclusive. It is an act of God. And because it is exclusive, and all this that we've been talking about, how exclusive it is, because it's exclusive and perfectly orchestrated by God, it should not come as a surprise to any of us at all that God has expectations of the behavior of those whom he saves. I'll say that again. God has expectations of the behavior of those whom he saves. This is what we see next in our text, right? In Ephesians 2.10. This is a second perfection of salvation we're going to look at now. The second perfection of salvation. Salvation, point number two in your notes, salvation has expectation. This is a perfection of salvation. That when you're given salvation, that it comes with God's expectations of how you're supposed to act. What you're supposed to do. Read with me Ephesians 2.10 again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, this is very interesting for Paul to do to us. Because back in verse 9, works are considered negatively. But here in verse 10, works are considered positively. And we all go, what's up, Paul? What gives? What's the nature of this conversation? Are you sure? Are you sure? Of course he's sure. Do you see what's going on here? There is no difference between, Adam putting, uh, between God putting Adam into the Garden of Eden and, and telling him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Rule over every fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the beasts in the earth. There's no difference than, between that and between God preordaining good works that you're supposed to walk in. Because those are the good works that Adam and Eve were supposed to walk in. What's any difference with you? God has things for you to do. God made us for a purpose. He has expectations of our behavior. Do you think the oxygen that you're breathing is free? Do you think that the sustaining of your heart was done of your own strength? Of course not. Well, why are there expectations? Well, let's unwrap this a little bit. Let's unwrap this idea a little bit. This is kind of the the Christmas stocking stuffer, and sometimes things get jammed down in there real tight, so we're going to kind of be careful and not just yank them out. We're going to pull them out one by one. Let's look at the first word here, poiema. Poiema in the Greek, workmanship. We are his workmanship. This is a unique word. It only shows up here and in Romans 1.20. What does it mean? What is it trying to tell us? That we are his workmanship. God is a master craftsman. We are the custom work of the master designer. Here it's speaking of the new creation that we become. God didn't leave us like we were when we were not walking with him. He has made us into a new creation. A similar thought would come from 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has Come, if you have received salvation from God, your nature has changed. Once spiritually dead because of the sin of Adam and Eve, you have been raised to life with Christ, in Christ. You have a new power source. This goes to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, where the prophet recorded the word of the Lord saying, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to keep my ordinances. Ezekiel 36 is powerful. 
So we're his workmanship. And from workmanship, we are second created in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. What is the text telling us here? We're created in Christ Jesus. This creates the sphere or the context into which we've been created in new creatures. We see more of this in, if you just look back at Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. What does this sphere include, this context? It says that we are in Christ, that we are made alive with him, that we are raised with him, and that we are seated with Christ, with him. Bound and wound and twisted all up together more than a threefold cord, we are with Christ. Lastly, third, the purpose statement, verse 10. We are his workmanships created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is a dynamic purpose statement. Good works prepared by God in eternity past, which he expects to be accomplished while you yet live. Can I tell you that the the pain and the hurt and the anger and the frustration and the bitterness and the depression and the anxiety and the sorrow and the weeping in the morning, the majority of it in your life that you've ever experienced of all of those things, the majority of it has only ever come from this. You have failed to recognize that God demands good works from you. And you have given filth and he demands righteousness. And that tension that you feel is a direct result that you're not paying attention to the God who made you and the God who wants you to give him the glory that he's earned and that he deserves by walking in the good works that he already prepared for you to walk in. You can get rid of the tension. You can get rid of the pain and the hurt and the sorrow if you would just do what he says to do. Work the good works that he has called you into. But this is more than just that he expects it. I I want you to understand the force of this purpose statement and what it indicates. These good works, it's not like they're just floating out there and maybe you'll get to this one and maybe you'll get to that one and you kind of bounce around through life. The force of the text says that you will do these good works. Do you feel the promise of what that means? That God's going to so change your heart from the filth and the wickedness of the past that he is going to make you walk the straight line. Do you see the hope in there? Is that you doing the work? On the one side, yes. But is who's doing the work? God is in you doing the work. There's such a rich blessing in that. These good works will happen. Failure here. In these good works is an impossibility. And why? Because of our new identity. We are new creatures, the products of the master workmen being found ourselves now in Christ. So the purpose statement says, you will do good works. That's the whole aim of our lives, right? What did we start the congregation out by saying this morning, the sermon? I started out by asking you that question. What is the purpose of your life? It's to glorify God. What does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the... Glory of God. This is what you want to do anyway. If you're after righteousness, if you're after eternal life with the God of the universe. So it should not be a surprise to anyone that God expects works. He expects us to do the things that he prepared for us. How many employers will pay employees for doing nothing? None. (laughs) You can't do that. You're not going to get paid. But we're not workers. We're not employers voluntarily. We're slaves of Christ. You can still see 
hear the argument, can't you? Someone's going to come up and say, how can good works be expected? And I would say, friend, friend. If you, if you ask me the question, how can good works be expected? I would ask you the question. How big is the Holy Spirit of the living God that he put inside of you to live in your heart? Is the Holy Spirit to you a little guy? He's a little guy. We tuck him in our pocket and just, oh, come on out. Let's play. That's not the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is a big guy. The Holy Spirit is not some name badge that you stick on a uniform. He's far more crucial than a name badge that you stick on a uniform. He's as critical and even more so to you than your ribs and your lungs and your kidneys and your heart. That's how critical he is to you. And see, here's what happens, however. If you, if, if you have a son who's got a helicopter, and it's a remote-control driven helicopter, and you pop out the dead batteries and you plug in new ones, what do you expect to happen? You expect that helicopter to take off and go to the ceiling and hit the ceiling again, right? That's what you expect to happen. It was a dead helicopter. It should go all the way to the ceiling now. And, and, and what about this? You know, have you ever dropped a new engine into an old, dead, stored away, dust-covered Shelby Cobra? I love that car. I would love to drop a new engine into one of those and just hear it just roar and come to life. How much power would be in it if it didn't have an engine or the engine was dead? How much power in a new engine? What would that look like to polish that off and take that for a drive? How much life would be generated? You see, these things are similar to what happens to a person who has been given the free gift of God. Salvation makes you spring to life. That's what salvation makes happen. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You, Christian. If that's who you are and that's what you claim to be, you, Christian, you are indwelt by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The power of God lives in you. How is that for creating expectations on your behavior? But maybe you're concerned about the kind of expectations. What is going to be asked of me? What is going to be demanded of me? What kind of expectations does God have? Oh, no, I'm in fear. I'm going to have to work again. Oh. He wants to see you pour forth the fruit of the Spirit that now has residence inside of you. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do them. Do them wildly. Do them abundantly. Can you imagine a world that would be created if everybody was producing this kind of fruit? You should be able to imagine that. Because as believers, that's what God has planned for us. is a world where everybody's doing this fruit all the time. Remember, God prepared these good works beforehand. You can go back to chapter 1 and see that language. The beforehand, the predestined, the elect, the chosen. And God chooses the good works that you're going to walk in as well. So get started on them. Do them often. There is no law prohibiting the exercise of love, joy, and self-control. John Calvin says that everything in us, therefore, that is good, is the supernatural gift of God. You can't produce anything good if God's not in you. Whatever you thought was good, Paul says that's filthy rags. But if God lives in you, then you actually have the ability to do something good, something glorifying to him. 
Paul says to the Philippians, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is in you, willing and working for his good pleasure. James was very comfortable with the idea of expectations. You know what James says. Pastor taught about that not too long ago. In James 2.17, he declares, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Ooh. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Boy, you can hear the heart of the pastor of Jerusalem, can't you? James, the pastor of Jerusalem. You can hear this pastor shepherding his congregation and challenging them and telling them, if the spirit lives in you, then produce the good works that God prepared from beforehand that you should walk in. This is the second perfection of salvation, that salvation has expectations. That's a perfection of salvation. That salvation, if it's given to you as a free gift, comes with expectations. God wants you to do something with your salvation. As a pastor and a shepherd, I'd be grieved in my heart if I didn't make this final comment about expectations. Does the world love our message? When you came in this morning, were there just people just lined up in throngs outside the door, just clamoring to get inside and hear that good old message of salvation? Not the case, huh? Neither at my counseling door over the course of the week. They're not lined up outside wanting the free gift of God's salvation. The world doesn't like our message. What do they do with our Savior? I hope you study over the course of this next week. They crucified him. They killed him. John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. As a slave is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what should your expectations be about how the world will treat you when you walk with Christ? Don't be deceived and think that Christianity is some, some idea of sunshine and lollipops all the time. It's not. That's not what it's about. This isn't a message that I'm preaching to you this morning of health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you that the world hates us, that our, that our message is hated because it convicts the world of sin. Because we preach Christ crucified and his commandment to the whole course of the world is repent. That's his command. They don't want to obey that. You can expect that you will be asked, even commanded, to endure suffering as a soldier for Christ if he has put salvation on you. There will be pain. There will be tears. But it will only ever lead to greater confidence, courage, and joy in the work of Christ inside of you. That's what you want. You want nearness with Christ. And trials and suffering bring that. Paul said to Timothy, he he told him about this. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So what do you make of these expectations of your life? What do you make of these expectations of Christianity? Is this a burden or an honor? If you're a Christian, then everything that I just said to you is an honor to go through for his namesake. It's an honor. And if you're a Christian, I need to ask you a few questions about having your performance checked in regard to good works that God expected from you. Are you failing or are you thriving? Husbands, are you loving your wives like Christ loved the church? That's there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Wives, are you submissive to your husbands as the church submits to Christ? That's Ephesians 5, 22. Children, are you obedient to your parents? That's Ephesians 6, verse 1. These are just a few of the examples in Scripture, particularly from Ephesians, and they're all over the place of what you're supposed to do. Do you know what you're supposed to do? Do you know other passages about what you're supposed to do? I would hope that you would admit it, that you failed, that you need grace yet again. And the real question is this, are you grieved to the point of repentance? Are you grieved to the point of repentance and the desire to obey God who gave you his grace and saved you? If so, I would encourage you to repent and obey God. 
But what if, what if you're visiting us this morning? You're a guest of ours and you don't know much about Christianity at all. And maybe this whole conversation that I presented about salvation just, it, it was just flying by. It was, just, it was near, but it was just a little far off. Maybe this conversation about salvation, this gift of salvation was even new to you. And perhaps you've never repented of your own sin. Can I speak to you for just a second? Friend, if this is you, I would ask that you consider God's free gift of salvation is offered through simply believing in his son, Jesus Christ. I would ask that you repent of your sins today. That the grief that you feel inside that won't go away, that you would understand that it is only going to go away if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and choose to honor him with the whole course of your life. I would even ask that you not leave today until you give me a chance to talk to you personally or one of our elders to talk with you about sin and about salvation in Christ. For all of us, though, for all of us, never, ever forget the simplicity of this equation, right? What is it? Salvation equals grace plus faith. So simple. The salvation is exclusively given by God as a free gift. And second, we saw that salvation has expectations of your behavior. And now, with saying that yet again, I have made you responsible to God for what you just heard and responsible to deliver the good works that he has prepared from beforehand that you should walk in. And I'll leave you with this. I am confident like Paul of this very thing, that he who would choose to begin a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Your words are so convicting to our heart because they are so contrary to our nature. Our nature is wicked and depraved because of original sin of Adam and Eve, our great-grandfather and grandmother. Father, we praise you today. Oh, what a glorious and costly salvation you have purchased for us in the blood of your son. Help us not to trample his cross. Lord, help us to understand salvation, to tuck these truths so deeply into our heart and forever be impacted by them that we would walk in the newness of life that you've given to us and do the good works that you, our Father, would be glorified at what you see in us. We thank you that you would look down on us and even choose to save us. We're so wretched and so wicked. We deserve nothing from you. But in your grace, you've done this. And we want to respond to you rightly. Let us do that now in worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.